Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And as always, this is Moral Matters. Today is our second episode of a conversation with Dr. Katie Harrell, who is a board-certified family physician and founder of Agave Family Medicine and Breastfeeding Support Center, and Dr. Brad Dreyfus, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of rural and global health program at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We spoke last time about how they got involved in advocacy, and this time we will be speaking more about the specifics of how they engage and how they actually go about making change. So let's have a listen. We are back today with Brad Dreyfus and Katie Harrell, who spoke to us recently about advocacy. And there is so much to speak about advocacy that we have them back again today to go through some of the nitty gritty of what they're doing and why it matters and how do you do this kind of thing in your own world. So let me kick it off with either Brad or Katie. Tell us what you are doing, what is important to you, what you're doing as we speak. So currently, I've been continuing to work with our group HCW Hosted, which is the organization that we had spoken briefly about in in the last episode that came about in March of 2020 um, when we were watching, when a few of us were watching COVID come from China to Italy um, to the United States. And we were trying to figure out how do we protect our healthcare workforce? Not just us as physicians, but our nurses, our long-term care facility staff, our historic therapists, broadly defined um, healthcare workers, uh, especially those who may be lower earners within our healthcare system that would need support, safe places to quarantine, um, psychological first aid, um, trying to reduce the um, levels of moral injury and burnout. And then that ended up evolving from the services that we were delivering um, of housing and psychological first aid to then more on the side of advocacy and battling mis- and disinformation around COVID and, and COVID mitigation, et cetera, really advocating for workplace safety as well. And so all of that is, has been evolving with the ebbs and flows of, of COVID. Um, and we are a nonprofit. Uh, and so we've been trying to figure out how do we end up pivoting that? And so we've come to a point where we are looking towards the potential of moving it into a data informatics and being able to partnership, partner with facilities, with healthcare employers, so they can figure out how they can better support their healthcare workers, improve teamwork and operations in the clinical spaces, which will then impact patient outcomes, patient care, patient outcomes, patient safety, et cetera. So that's been what I had been what I have been working on for the last couple of years. And that then has evolved into um, working on more of the advocacy side with trying to reduce risk of transmission in our state. And that's where Katie and I uh, had met at the beginning of Right to Safe Schools, Arizona, where we were able to take the relationships we've built within our own organizations and previous uh, advocacy work um, and work with our partners to build a larger umbrella of parents and healthcare workers and public health um, professionals and lawyers, et cetera, to come together and help create a pathway for parents to speak up at, um, at boards of supervisors and, and school board meetings. 
trying to advocate for um, COVID mitigations in our schools. That was in July, June of 2021. Katie? Yes, thanks, Brad, for, for all of that recap. Um, yeah, so it was summer of 2021, and the Arizona State Legislature had passed the Educational uh, Budget Reconciliation Package for the fiscal year. And they included a lot of unrelated legislation as part of that package. Um, included in that was a law that was hostile to masking. It was actually a mask ban in public education and at charter schools in the state. And here we were at the height of the Delta surge, seeing um, a pretty sharp increase in hospitalizations and uh, healthcare utilization and, and increases in deaths from COVID-19 with a large number of children unvaccinated at this point in time. They, they had no vaccine for a majority of our children and they were going to be heading back to school. So, you know, we really, sat back trying to think about how we could change the narrative. You know, in these moments when you feel so helpless, like the governor is going to sign this law, we all know that it's coming. There's nothing that we are going to say or we are going to do that is going to stop him from that. But what can we do? What tools do we have available? And and just kind of reframing it and, and not sitting back feeling hopeless and sorry for ourselves, but thinking about what do we have our, at our disposal? And, and one of the biggest things that we had at our disposal was our social and political capital to be able to come together through relationships that we had forged over the years uh, through our work here in the state and, and in medicine and build a coalition. And it was a really powerful coalition. And, and it's something that I still carry with me, you know, even though the, the work that we've done through this particular organization is kind of simmered down for the time being, it is still a, a very empowering coalition because we were able to even work with our educators and policymakers um, at a more local level in the state to be able to talk about what we needed to do to actually overturn the legislation in the state and also move the needle in terms of what the conversation was around masking. What was so surprising to me were the number of parents who didn't know that this had been passed as part of the reconciliation package um, because it wasn't a law in and of itself. Um, and so after consulting with educators, with the uh, Arizona School Board Association, talking with other parents who were concerned, really starting to make a lot of noise around this, going to these meetings, board of supervisor meetings, going to these school board meetings, you know, getting people a little bit more activated and concerned about the issue. We were able to secure an attorney who was willing to take on a class action lawsuit and sue the state of Arizona for an unconstitutional law which fortunately um, we were successful with. And I think one of the greatest successes of the work that we had done uh, with, with really all of this kind of evolving over the course of the pandemic and through the work that both Brad and I were doing, um, turning into a really wonderful success that had a very large impact and forged lasting relationships with educators and parents and other individuals throughout our state. But just to add to that, I, I, I think it's really important to highlight the fact that this lawsuit was one part of what we were doing. 
we were building resources for parents. We were creating social networks where parents would come together and see they weren't alone. We were going to speak at school boards and boards of supervisors, creating groups to do so they, they wouldn't be intimidated by the masses of anti-maskers and the, and the anti-COVID voice that was coming about. And so creating that safe space for parents and teachers and healthcare workers, but for the psychologic safety to talk about these issues, to better understand COVID, to better understand COVID mitigation, to bring the data around airborne respiratory virus transmission, right? So how we could actually build Corsi Rosenthal filter boxes and have them distributed to schools, right? We had a team of eight or nine of us in the main core of Reggie Safe Schools, Arizona, all of which with different skill sets and a little bit different vantage points. But it was the very operational component of listening and understanding what the challenges were in each school district and then creating the safe space and the tools so our parents and community leaders had resources at their disposal. Because then and that aggregate voice that then was created at these local levels, individual schools to a school system, trickles up to the state and wins in one area or of the state were then easily communicated and, and translated and replicated in other parts of the state. And I, and I think that that the you're absolutely right, Brad. I mean, the outcome with the lawsuit was a major success. But there were these other successes that are a little bit more difficult to measure. So, you know, through the course of really building this sense of community and this coalition in the state of Arizona, we had a number of educational events. We had town halls um, featuring various physicians, um, featuring, um, you know, several public health leaders within our state. And we really provided a lot of foundational education to people who, who they didn't really understand why should they be concerned about masks in schools? How is COVID transmitted? You know, how, why is it so important that we do have good ventilation in the classroom? And why is it that the type of mask that my child is wearing matters? And I think just by kind of uh, merging the educational component along with the advocacy component, we were able to be much more effective in terms of, of helping people kind of get their foothold in understanding these major concepts and then be able to go back to their own local community and to their groups of friends and to their neighbors and to their school boards and say, these are the things I'm concerned about and start actually becoming more engaged from a civic standpoint. And, and there's not a great measurement of that, but I still to this day talk with people here and there through other social networks that they will bring up the work that was done by Right to Safe Schools Arizona as so monumental in them becoming more engaged with their community and with advocacy and health policy. And, and I think from that we did this with zero budget, number one. Number two, what's come from it is that we do have more empowered community members. One of the people on our team is actually going to be running for a school board and is in been increasingly um, articulate about the issues and has, has wielding more influence. For me, on my side personally, coming back to the question earlier about, hey, what are you doing now? I'm trying to figure out how do we actually create a curriculum around advocacy to address moral injury within the College of Medicine and within health sciences? 
how do we actually start studying what are the impacts of advocacy? How can we do things better? I haven't found much in the way of academics around this, especially in health sciences. And that's something that we need to build. And so that's where my head is now as a faculty member trying to say, okay, we've been doing all this on the side in our own, our own silos and with our own partners across the state, across the nation, et cetera. How do we empower our students to be thinking about what are their, what's their role in helping create the future that they want for our communities, for their practice, and for the patients that they will be caring for and for their generations? Yeah, so I have, I have a question for you, because I think you're right that we don't often learn much of that, and it would be great if we could build some more of that in. But going back to the Arizona Safe Schools, you kind of, you really just kind of glossed over what, what happened in building the coalition. Well, we built the coalition, and then we did all these great things. <laughs> so I want to take you back and say, okay, how did you build that coalition? And who was part of that coalition? I know it was parents and I know it was you guys, but who was part of that coalition? And how did you develop that grassroots energy? And how did you, per how did you get it to persist? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was definitely a very quick process. I feel that um, all of the right pieces of the puzzle were kind of right there in place, ready to go. Um, and, and a lot of it came with just first and foremost, an awareness and a pressure campaign. So one of the first things that we worked on as a group in the early days when we were first forming, there were just a few of us um, that came together actually over social media saying, we have to do something. We can't just sit back and watch this unravel in front of our eyes without doing something. Um, and one of the things that we did is we drafted an open letter and we circulated it and it started out as an open letter just amongst healthcare workers to the governor um, and to state legislators saying, you know, really, this, this is really bad policy and that this was going to be detrimental to our communities. And here's why. And here's the evidence why. And that we are concerned healthcare leaders that that this is the wrong direction. This is going to have devastating effects on the health and safety of our communities and our schools and our children. And that letter grew and it grew and it grew. And then we decided, you know, why are we limiting it just to healthcare workers? Maybe we need to do another one that is for the general public and for educators and for parents and citizens of concern that are concerned. And so we expanded that. And it just continued to grow. And then as we did this, we used other pressure techniques as well, like um, doing some press calls, some press releases, some op-eds in the local media, um, really putting the pressure on our state policymakers around this piece of legislation. And as a result of that, we were receiving emails and phone calls to be guests, to do interviews, to, to speak about the work that we were doing. So we decided that we should actually formalize to some extent the work that we were doing a little bit more so that if people wanted to join the work that we were doing, that they had a seat at the table as well. And so we gave it the title, um, Right to Safe Schools Arizona, because we, we felt that that really represented the values of the work that we were doing in the sense that every parent should feel that their child is allowed to attend a safe school and be safe and COVID free, or at least 
have a mitigated risk of COVID. Um, just the way adults were able until vaccines were available, have a mitigated risk of COVID. And we set up a web page and we started making our organizing more formal. We started drafting letters and sending them to, to ASBA, to school boards, to um, principals, to the uh, county supervisors, to mayors, to all of our elected leaders, essentially at every single le uh, level. I mean, it, we just spent hours drafting these letters and sending letters. And of course, we would get some troll mail kind of responding to us at times, but we would also get people reaching out saying, hey, hey, I'm with you. And, and what do we do? How do we do this? And it just snowballed from there, building these relationships just through writing, getting on phone calls, um, being able to, to talk with other physicians throughout the state that they had never given testimony testimony, but hey, this school board over here would really like to have a professional, a health professional come and speak. And you're the person I know. So what do you think? Oh, you've never done it before. Let's talk about what that looks like and how to get that done. And by the way, I know this group of parents up there who are going to be speaking about it because their children attend school. So they're going to be there to rally behind you. And now all of a sudden there's that community that has started to blossom at that school district. It was a pretty amazing um, process and a pretty amazing experience, but that is how it grew. And it happened so organically, um, which I think was the most beautiful thing about it. It, it happened organically because of the eight of us, we'd worked together in different ways. Different, So it was already a vetted group of people. And that is really important. The team development you can't really overstate the, the importance of. If you need people with complementary skills, we can, and the work has to be based in trust, right? If you have someone who is looking for a lot of limelight who might want a political career, that's gonna sink a group and, and decrease trust. And so making sure that you have your team together, making sure that we all understand this is gonna be exhausting. We all have full-time jobs and families and all that. And so creating a team where if you're starting something, someone might be able to put a lot of effort in the front end, and then another person's putting effort in the middle, and then there are people who are able to finish things off in the back end. Or you have complementary skill sets, people writing, editing, um, really working on the social media engagement to lower that bar for parents to be able to come forward, for people to feel comfortable um, signing a petition or an open letter, um, because that's what the politicians and the school boards actually really listen to. And then, honestly, the, the, the media context that we have made through our own individual groups, whether it be uh, HCW hosted or whether it be Agave or, or others, we all brought all of our resources and our relationships to the table to try and figure out what are the common goals of this group and how are we going to leverage all of our resources even though we don't have financial resources. Both of you have spoken about some of the, the spectacular wins that you've had, but I'm curious as well what some of the biggest challenges that you've had are, because you can never have a win without something getting in the way. So what, what are the biggest hurdles? What are the things that people should be aware of that you guys were able to overcome, but are still challenges doing this work? My perspective, um, I think it, it, a lot of it really comes from what does it cost us mentally, emotionally, physically to do this, right? Our biggest, I think, most successful letter, open letter 
was one that we started writing in, in this past December at the peak of COVID. Um, so, variant when I was moonlighting in the ICU and I just started drafting this letter or putting together the ideas for it because the situation in our ICUs was so ridiculous. I'm an emergency physician and I was working in ICUs. So the ICU docs needed a break, right? And we wanted to get as many physicians and healthcare workers from across the state to sign this letter to our state leadership and to our healthcare systems leadership, which we were all cynical about them actually receiving a letter and having it lead to change, but we at least had to get our voices out there. They had to hear what it was really like on the front lines. So hopefully they make better choices. And so for me, and I think for probably a lot of us, putting the amount of time and effort into getting that letter dialed in so it really appealed to to the stakeholders and that we're going to sign it. And then have 1,300 or 1,400 people sign this letter, have it gained some interest from state leaders and have a few meetings, then for it to lose steam, not actually to lead to a specific outcome like the lawsuit did, right? The lawsuit had a ruling that that was unconstitutional the way that that anti-mask mandate came through, right? But we were able to mobilize a lot of people, but it was so exhausting. I personally didn't anticipate how much downtime I would need after that and how depleted. And so I think there's actually a lot of learning for all of us. How do you create resilient systems um, and resilient teams so you can balance out that energy and debt that it takes to try and push for change? Because we would still have to do that letter, right? We needed to at least say that we tried before further measures were taken, right? Whether it's labor movement or whatever comes next, not that we have any specific plans for anything. Um, but yeah, I, th I think anticipation of what it's going to take on the back end, that, that you're looking farther on and you're strategizing farther out for the what's next. And being okay if there's not a specific need to pivot or what's, what's next, right? Because every member of our team can go back to the things they were already working on we might might not need to make a pivot, and that's fine. But I think larger strategizing would have been helpful. Yes, and I think you know it, it's important to understand that advocacy can be a means of of self care through corrective action and social justice to actually help mitigate moral injury. But when you have subsequent hurdles or what you may view, I, I, I try not to view anything in advocacy as a failure. You may not have a win. It may not be a direct success, but I try not to label it a failure, but sometimes it can feel that way. And when you have several of those in a row or something where it just seemed like it was so important and, and you didn't have the outcome that you were hoping for, it can actually feel also morally injurious. So finding the balance and allowing for the space um, to recharge because of the emotional bandwidth that is utilized in advocacy is so incredibly important. And it's something that that you have to be mindful of um, and, and actually plan for in advance. Like, here's something that we need to be working on. We're going to give it our all. But then what do we do after that? How do we recharge that battery so that we can show up again in a meaningful way? Even if it means for one particular project, 
you have to tag out for a little bit and, and take some time away so that you can breathe and clear your head. It's the process of learning and learning what's effective and how teams work. And advocacy is a learning opportunity. I think is incredibly important and can't be really overstated either because we need to figure out how to do this more effectively over time, figure out as individuals what we're good at and what we're not. Because I think it's an unfair expectation that most of your listeners and most of our colleagues are going to have the time and effort and desire to put in as much as some of us who may end up on, on the show. But that doesn't mean that their effort, even a small amount, even signing a letter or speaking at a um, speaking up at a meeting, right? That is all really important, and that shouldn't be um, taken for granted at all. And so I, I feel like we need to be very clear. And, and as we talk about advocacy, that it's not all or nothing. You don't lay all on the table. We need to figure out how to make advocacy opportunities really tangible across the whole spectrum of desire for involvement or focus on their career. Absolutely. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys coming in and helping us understand what advocacy is about, the challenges. I mean, one of the things it seems like is this is a marathon, not a sprint. And all of us in healthcare want to change everything all at once. And I think that's often one of our biggest stumbling blocks is how do we do something in a sustainable way so that we can come back and do it again tomorrow and the next day and the day after? Absolutely. It's it's an endurance sport. It's not for instant gratification. It's not for instant gratification. And what I hope listeners really take away from this whole conversation is you start with where you're at. You start with what you're interested in. And likely you'll meet the people along the way who complement your skill sets or um, challenge you to take another a step that, within your comfort zone to end up at an area or level that you're comfortable with. Maybe you're someone who wants to do a phone bank once every six months. That's great. And every second that you spend on campaign is appreciated more than you'll ever know by the community that you're serving and doing so. And so please, no one should take any of it for granted, any of their time, nor should they feel like they have to put their whole livelihood and their whole focus and all their family time and everything else on, on the line. My partner and I work on these projects together, which makes it much more do, doable for our, for our family because we have complementary skill sets and so strongly about similar. That's not the same program. That's just fine. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do. It's really, it's important and it's good to know that there are such passionate people out there bringing people together to do good work. Agreed. Thank you both. Thank you. And I personally look forward to working with all of you and figuring out how we can actually better understand the impact of advocacy in the long term for healthcare workers, on healthcare workers, and figuring out how to be more effective. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. So, Wendy, this is one of those situations that we talk about with a lot of people, which is how do you actually go about practically making change? 
And I like the idea that Brad and Katie talk about, which is following the opportunities that present. You don't always know when something's going to pop up. And as with us, you don't always know when something's going to really frustrate you. But taking those opportunities and taking those small things, taking the pebble in your shoe and uh, dealing with it is a sort of a perfect starting point. Yeah. And what I was thinking as I was listening to them was that advocacy isn't necessarily a steady drumbeat. It's when something pops up, you take that opportunity. It might be a sprint and then there's a rest. Mm -hmm. And it's something that a lot of us who are new to the efforts, who are new to advocacy, forget about. And so when we're in the midst of a really hard push, we forget that eventually we'll, we'll get to the top of that hill and we can coast for a little bit. But the, the other thing that I thought was interesting was how they talked about getting a sense of where applying pressure would work to move an effort forward. Yeah, it's not always obvious, I think, and that's where some of the things they talked about in the first episode, which is getting your team together and doing all your research ahead of time are critically important because that's how you can prepare to actually make change and know where you need to put that pressure. Right. And the more people that you bring into the effort, the more perspectives you'll have and maybe the more information about what's worked in the past. Right. Yeah. So who is favorable to the thing you're trying to do and the change you're trying to make? Right. Right. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can always make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation, and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well.